What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylar. So this weekend, the Red Sox play the Dodgers in a weekend series at Fenway Park. I know I wanted to do a recap of each game, and I said I would get to, but unfortunately, it was busy over the last few days, so I didn't get to do that. So here I am now talking about the Red Sox and Dodgers series. I give my thoughts on that series, talk about the Red Sox and Astros series, game one being last night, game two being tonight, and then I'll talk about the Angels and what just went down there in the last hour with the Angels releasing a handful of players including some that they just got at the trade deadline just about a month or so ago now. So I'll give you my thoughts on that at the end. But we're going to start off now with the Red Sox and Dodgers. Mookie Betts' return to Fenway Park was a special one. There were ovations just about every single at-bat for him. I was there on Friday night, so I got to see his first at-bat back at Fenway Park. Everybody was going nuts. There was a nice tribute on the scoreboard in center field for Mookie Betts, as well as Ryan Brazier, as well. He got one for being part of the 2018 World Series run. It was just a great weekend to see them all back in Boston. J.D. Martinez wasn't there since he was hurt, but you got to see Mookie Betts, Kika Hernandez back in Boston. He was a fan favorite when he was here. Everyone was going nuts when he went up to the plate. Ryan Brazier, also David Roberts as well. I mean, that was a guy that was a big reason the Red Sox won that World Series in 2004, making that big steal in Game 4 of the ALCS versus the Yankees, a steal that everybody knew he was going on that pitch, and he ends up still being safe and beating the throw of Jorge Posada there to Derek Jeter at second, somehow getting his hand in to the base right before the ball reached him and the glove reached him. So impressive, obviously, there. But it was a great weekend, though. You got to see all the former teammates Dap up, hug, talk in between the game. Raphael Devers, Mookie Betts had a nice moment. I got to see since I was sitting on the third baseline. Got to see them both talk, you know, in the middle of an inning, uh, which was nice during a pitching change. So, obviously a great thing to see them back in Boston. Mookie really took advantage of the moment. He was unreal this weekend against the Red Sox. He was 7-for-15 in the series with a 467 batting average, a home run, four runs batted in, two doubles, five runs scored in the month of August, a 446 batting average to go along with a 782 slugging percentage, a 1282 OPS, eight home runs, 25 runs batted in. He's now the NL favorite to win the MVP vote. And in the first week of July, I said when he was plus 2,200, in the first week of July, I said, buy in on Mookie Betts right now to win the NL MVP. Because I was saying he was making a run. I said he's a dark horse candidate still, but I think Mookie Betts is going to make a run. Then at the All-Star break, I stayed consistent, even though he's still a long shot at that point. I stayed consistent with Mookie Betts being my MVP favorite and being the pick at the end of the season. And now look at it. He's now the NL MVP favorite, partly because of how hot he's been in the month of August, hitting 446. Freddie Freeman... In this series against the Red Sox, he was great as well. 7 of 13 with a 539 batting average, three doubles, a run batted in, and four runs scored. He was a tough guy to get out, including Friday night, where he was 4 for 5, three runs scored, a double, and a run batted in. Max Muncy as well was another tough guy to get out for the Red Sox. He was 2 for 5 in that game on Friday night with three runs batted in. The Dodgers really got things going late in the game on Friday night, scoring three runs in the sixth inning, three runs in the seventh inning, and then a run in the ninth as well to win that game 7-4. to four. That was the game I was at. The Sox were in it until the end. Things got out of hand late, though, losing, as I said, 7-4, to four, giving up seven runs from the sixth inning to the ninth inning. But the Sox were up 3 to nothing at one point. Trevor Story hit a nice home run early in the second inning. Same thing with Alex Verdugo. He had a leadoff home run on Friday night and on Saturday as well. He actually had three games in a row with a leadoff home run. Didn't do it Sunday, unfortunately, or in yesterday's game against the Astros. But the Red Sox did get things going early in that game. They're up 3 to nothing on Friday night. Things were looking up. And Cutter Crawford was also great on the mound. Nice to see him pitch in person. He dominated on the mound on Friday, going five innings, four hits allowed, two earned runs, seven strikeouts, a walk on 86 pitches. He looked very good in person. Happy to be able to see him pitch live for a game. I'm always used to just watching him on TV. It was nice to see him pitch in person live at Fenway Park. 
And the Sox were hitting around Lance Lynn as well. So you had Cutter Crawford pitching great in the mound, and the Sox hit around Lance Lynn, especially early in the game, getting a run in the first, and then a couple in the second inning. That was great to be up 3-0 right away. Lynn went six innings, giving up 10 hits, four runs, with three of those being earned, a strikeout, and a walk. The Red Sox had opportunities to score, but whether it was not having a big hit in a big moment or it was poor base running, the Red Sox found themselves ways to lose that game on Friday night, including a big situation in the later innings where it was first and second two outs. Alex Verdugo at the plate had a great single to right field, and Connor Wong rounded second base too much, going from first to second. And I think he thought that Casas, who was going from second to third on that play, was going to round third and try to score. Wasn't going to be a right decision to make, considering the Dodgers had a great relay in. He would have gone thrown at the plate. Casas should have stayed put at third like he was intending to, which he ended up staying put at third. But Wong thought that Casas was going to round third and try to score on that play. And unfortunately, he gets himself picked off in a run down there. So the Red Sox lose in that situation. Verdugo was great in the game, three for five, including that hit that I just mentioned. And then on Saturday, the Red Sox won the game 8-5. They were down 4-2 in the fifth inning after Max Muncy hit his 30th home run of the season. Adam Duvall responded with his 15th home run of the year. Then Justin Turner, a couple innings later, had an RBI single in the seventh. James Paxton got the start for the Red Sox on Saturday, but he kind of struggled yet again, just going four and one-third innings on the mound, giving up four hits, four earned runs, four strikeouts, and then five walks. He's been really struggling with control over his last few outings. Julio Arias got the start for the Dodgers. He got hit around by the Red Sox, going six innings, giving up eight hits, six earned runs, three home runs allowed, nine strikeouts, and one walk. He was really good in his last four outings heading into that game on Saturday, but the Red Sox really hit him around and got things going, especially in those later innings that he was out there. Mookie Betts was three for six in the game with an RBI and a double. And then on Sunday, the Dodgers once again just did what they always do, have big hits in big situations from Freddie Freeman, Mookie Betts, among others, and that got them the win there on Sunday with Betts going three for five, two runs scored, a home run, and three runs batted in. Freddie Freeman added in another three hits. He was three for five with a run scored and two doubles. Tanner Houck got the start for the Red Sox. He was pretty good in four innings, giving up just five hits, one earned run, four strikeouts, two walks on 80 pitches. Now just a second start since coming back from that facial fracture. He looked pretty good, though, in that game against the Dodgers. And then Connor Murphy was raked in relief, though, for the Red Sox after Houck came out. Four innings, giving up nine hits, six earned runs, and four strikeouts. As for the Dodgers, it was Gavin Stone who went in middle relief for them, going six innings, giving up five hits, four runs, and two strikeouts. And as I said, Betts and Freeman were just the whole offense that day for the Dodgers, both going three for five and having big hits and big moments. But they found ways to hit the whole series, though. The rest of their lineup was productive against the Red Sox as well. But those two guys, obviously the two biggest terrors in that lineup and two of the best hitters in the game of baseball. As for the Red Sox, Adam Duvall hit another home run in that game on Sunday. He was two for four, and the Tristan Casas was two for four with two RBIs, a home run, and a double. So obviously the series didn't go well for the Red Sox. I thought the Red Sox could take two of three from the Dodgers. I knew that would be a hot take, especially considering how hot that the Dodgers have been in the month of August. But I had a feeling the Red Sox would try to play up to their competition. They've played good teams consistently all year, and they've been finding ways to win against better teams. It's really the poor teams the Red Sox have really struggled with. Games they should win, they've been losing on the year. And that series that you think they're going to lose, they end up finding a way to win. So I thought the Red Sox could steal two of three there against the Dodgers. Taking one of three, though, Obviously, isn't the best case scenario. You want a two of three, but you'll take one of three considering the Dodgers have been dominating the major leagues 
in the whole month of August. And honestly, since the All-Star break, they've been really one of the best teams in baseball and really consistently found ways to win each and every series. So you'll take one of three at the end of the day. It was nice to see the Dodgers play in person, though. So this year, I've seen Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and the Dodgers play in person, and then Shelly Otani, Mike Trout, and the Angels play in person. Getting to see two of my other favorite teams besides the Red Sox in person really has been something special. And obviously, an honor just to be able to see them play at Fenway Park in person, seeing superstars like Otani, Betts, Freeman, and Trout. That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I'm happy I was able to see those things. And I also got to see Ten Hauk pitch in person this year, Cutter Crawford pitch in person this year. So I'm starting to see a lot of my favorite players play in person, uh, which is obviously awesome. Uh, now I'm going to move on to the Red Sox series against the Astros. And one thing for this Red Sox team is... They need to find ways now to win in the month of August and in September, considering now they're playing a lot of teams that are ahead of them in the AL wildcard race, including the Astros. But unfortunately, the Red Sox ended up finding a way to lose last night, despite an Adam Duvall two-run home run in the bottom of the fifth to give the Red Sox a 4-3 lead. Things were looking up for the Red Sox down 3-2 heading into the bottom of the fifth inning. Kyle Baraclaw came into the game in the top of the fifth, got the third out for the Red Sox to go into the bottom of the fifth inning down 3-2. And then Adam Duvall had the two-run home run, big home run there to make it 4-3 Sox. And then things went downhill for the Red Sox. Barraclaw went four and a third innings, giving up 11 hits, 10 earned runs, two home runs, a strikeout, and five walks. The Sox chose not to warm anybody up, not to bring anybody in in relief, and they just let the game get out of hand. And it's tough to see that because the Red Sox are still in the mix of things in the AL wildcard race. Even though it's still a long shot for them to make the playoffs and the odds are still against them, they are still alive and still have a chance to make the playoffs. And they really just threw in the towel last night and said, screw it, we'll lose this game and just give up. They just kept their reliever in the game, Barraclaw, and left him out to dry. Four and a third innings, giving up 11 hits, 10 earned runs, two home runs, and five walks. And Alex Cora maybe could have brought somebody else in after he gave up a few runs or had a few walks, but he chose just to keep him in the game. So does that mean Alex Cora gave up on this season? Because I still believe there is a chance that the Red Sox can make a run if they were to make the playoffs. Obviously now... The odds are even more against them now than they were yesterday at this time. But it's sad to not see them try, especially against a team that they're chasing and that they're behind right now in the AL Wildcard race. When you're playing teams that are in front of you, that's the best advantage you can get because you can beat them and gain a gain on them head-to-head right away and gain a game while they're losing a game. And that's the issue. The Red Sox chose to throw in the towel last night. And I'm not sure who was available. The Red Sox had four righty relievers not available for last night's game, then also no lefty relievers. So maybe Alex Cora's left with no option but to say, Barraclaw here, we're going to leave you out to dry because we have no other options. Maybe it's him sending a message to High and Bloom for not giving him any relievers at the trade deadline, which obviously Bloom and Cora have been on different wavelengths on a lot of decisions over the last couple seasons. You can kind of tell there's a little bit of frustration between Alex Cora and High and Bloom, which is understandable. You're not always going to have a GM and a coach or a manager that always gets along on every single decision. It's hard because you're going to have different opinions, and that's part of the business. You're not going to agree with every single person in your front office always. But you want to at least agree more of the time than not. And it seems like Bloom and Cora have a little bit of an issue there between them agreeing and seeing eye to eye. And the Sox right now, it's still in the midst of things in the AI wildcard race. So seeing the Red Sox just throw in the towel last night and see Alex Cora just give up like that isn't the best message to the team, the locker room, the fans, Nobody in general really has had a good message to Not even High and Bloom even. Because obviously I'm not blaming Alex Cora for the relievers that the Red Sox have available. Who knows who was available and who wasn't. But at the end of the day, he is the one that makes the decision to keep a guy in the game. And I'm not blaming Bloom for that reason for last night the Red Sox threw in the towel. Because Alex Cora could have taken Barraclaw out at any point. It wasn't High and Bloom's decision to keep Barraclaw in the game. 
You can blame Bloom, I guess, for not getting any relieves the Red Sox in the trade deadline. Yeah, that's something you could keep him accountable for. But last night, that's all in Alex Cora for keeping that guy in the game. When the Sox are still in the midst of things in the AI wildcard race, it's sad to see them just throw in the towel, especially in a game where they're still up a run at one point. They were up 4-3 after a two-run home run by Duvall, and they still just chose to throw that game away. Now the Red Sox are five and a half games back of the AI wildcard race, and things aren't over, but the odds are definitely now more against the Red Sox today than they were yesterday. And to make matters worse, the Astros got really hot last night as a team, winning that game 13-5. to Thirteen to five, winning that game last night, scoring six runs in the sixth inning, two in the seventh, and two in the eighth, with eighteen total hits. And Jose Altuve hit for the cycle, four for six last night, four RBIs, a single, double, triple home run, and a strikeout. Now his batting average is up to three twenty-two in the season. So things just went poor for the Red Sox last night. Tonight it's Brian Bayo on the mound, ten and seven record on the year with three point five six ERA. He was on the mound for the Red Sox last week in a seventeen to one monster outing against Houston. At Minute Maid Park, that was a big win for the Red Sox, 17-1. And on the mound for Houston is that same pitch that started for Houston in that 17-1 game. It is J.P. France on the mound for Houston. He has a 9-5 record on the year, 9 wins, 5 losses, a 3.51 ERA. The Sox just lit him up in his last outing for 10 earned runs and 11 hits in 2 and one third innings pitched. Hopefully the Red Sox can find a way to win tonight. Tomorrow, it'll be Framba Valdez on the mound for Houston. He is 9-9 on the year with a 3.4 ERA. For the Sox, it'll be Cutter Crawford, who is 6-6 on the year with a 3.65 ERA. I think the Sox find a way to bounce back and win both of these games. Maybe that's just wishful thinking at the end of the day. They need to take at least one of these two games that are remaining. Still losing 2-3 of three in the series is still a tough stretch. But if they at least take one, at least you know, okay, they didn't completely throw in the towel. If they lose all three completely throw this season away. Things are just done for them. If they take one of these last two games and take one of three, obviously not a great series, but at least they still fought and tried to make it at least competitive. If they take two of three, they're back in business and still in the midst of things there in the AL. I'd like to see the Red Sox win both of these games. Obviously, it's still a long shot take considering how poor they looked last night, but the relievers were sitting last night. It was Bear Claw on the mound for the Red Sox last night. So hopefully their bullpen is well-rested and ready to go in relief of Bayo tonight. Hopefully a good outing out of Bayo. The Red Sox need it now more than ever. So now I'm going to move on and talk about some big news across the major leagues over the last hour. And that was a report coming from Jeff Passan of ESPN. And he talked about the Angels and said that they just made a flurry of moves in the last hour, including releasing starter Lucas Giolito, reliever Ronaldo Lopez, two of those plays they just got from the Chicago White Sox just about a month ago now at the trade deadline in a trade. Reliever Matt Moore they also released. And then outfielders Hunter Renfro and Randall Grigic, all five of those plays being placed on waivers. And the interesting thing there is three of those five plays were plays the Angels just got at the trade deadline a month ago. Grigic, Giolito, and Lopez. Now all three of them are being placed on waivers. And it does come down to being a salary dump thing. The Angels know that they have no shot now to make the playoffs, and they're completely clearing the house, getting rid of players, and trying to save some money and try to get under the luxury tax. But at the end of the day, it's not a great message. And I'm going to give you my whole thought process on this whole situation. So it's probably going to be about a 10-minute rant here on the Angels, which now I've done a handful of times over the last few months, going off about the Angels and their bad luck, and supporting Perry Manasian last week, which I know I supported him last week for going all the way to the trade deadline, and obviously it did fail. If you look back, yes, things didn't work out there. But what he did today, I think, was worse than what he did at the trade deadline. Because what he did today makes what he did at the trade deadline look even worse. Because everybody knew the Angels at this point where they stood today were out of the playoffs. 
But the decision he made today to release those players made the Angels hit rock bottom even more because now it puts what they did at the trade deadline on display even more and proves that all the moves they made to go all in were even more of a field than you'd think. Because it's not like they still were in contention at this point in the season. There's still a month left to go, and they're already throwing in the towel saying, we're done. And that's probably the right thing to do, considering they're 11 and a half games back of the last wildcard spot right now. 3-7 and seven in the last 10 games, 7-18 and 18 in the month of August, and they sit at 63-69 and 69 overall. 11 and a half games back, they got no shot where they stand right now. And I know I had the whole rant last week about Perry Manese and how much I supported him for going all into the trade deadline. I explained why the Angels went all into the trade deadline and why it made sense at the time for them to go all in when they were only three games back of the last wildcard spot. And obviously now when you look back at field. But I think what he did today, it proves even more that the Angels had such a failure of a trade deadline. Everybody knew the trade deadline didn't go well for the Angels and they could have traded Otani. Instead, they chose to buy and go all in and try to make a run with this year's team, which I still respect Paramedizian for doing so. It takes guts to do that. And at the time, when he did it, the Angels were only three games out and I think it was the right decision. But now when you're releasing two of your better relievers, including one of them you just traded for in Ronaldo Lopez, and you're also trading for Lucas Giolito, and you're also trading for Randall Grigic, and releasing those two players as well. So you're releasing three players you just traded for within the last month. That's obviously not a good look. You're trading for three players at the deadline, and you're releasing three of them already a month later. And we'll see what happens. CJ Crone is another guy maybe they could release. I'm not really too sure what's going to go on there, but they did just release five players. Maybe they go and choose to release a few more. We'll see what happens. But you're also releasing one of your best relievers in Matt Moore. Your best reliever probably overall. Moore and Lopez are your two best relievers, both with ERAs in the twos. Earned on averages, somewhere around two to two and a half. And you're releasing them with a month left of the season. You're waving the white flag, which I get it to some degree because the Angels aren't going anywhere now where they stand currently on August 29th. But in some regard, it's like dropping all of your best players in fantasy football right before the playoffs so that all the top teams that are contending for the championship can go and snag whatever player they need at whatever position, which it's not against major league rules to do that. It's not against MLB rules to go out and release players at this point in the season. And some teams do this every single year just to save money, which it's not uncommon to see this happen. But at the same time, releasing that many players, including guys you just traded away prospects for to acquire at the trade deadline, is not the best look to fans, not the best look to your clubhouse, and obviously isn't the best look when you reflect it on yourself in the moves you made at the trade deadline. It makes your mistakes look even bigger. Which, as I said, sometimes in life, if you want a big reward, you've got to take that big risk. And taking that big risk can sometimes slap you in the face. And you know when you take that big risk, things can go completely south and you completely lose, or things can go completely north and work out and you could end up winning. But you never know how far you can get in life, being your general manager, anything in general, without trying to take a shot downfield. You never know how far you can get or how much you can succeed without taking a shot downfield and airing the ball out and seeing what happens on a 50-50 ball. And I'm relating that to the NFL there with the airing the ball out, 50-50 ball, and taking a shot downfield. Because playing conservative typically doesn't get you a ring or a playoff push in the Angels' regard. You have to try to take a big risk. That's what Perry Manasian did at the trade deadline, and I still support him for doing that. And maybe I supported that decision just out of wanting Shohei Otani and Mike Trout to win. Because I feel like those two guys deserve to win more than any players in the game of baseball. Who wouldn't want them to win? Two guys that are the two best talents in the game of baseball and don't have any playoff success to show for it. And when you look where the Angels were at the trade deadline, they were 56-51 overall, 
56 wins, 51 losses, so five games over 500. It was three games back at the deadline. Just three games back. Yes, with a crazy gauntlet of a schedule coming in the month of August, but does that mean not to try? Does that mean just completely give up and give in? They went all in to try to give Shohei Otani a chance at the playoffs and try to keep him around long-term. Maybe they could have made a run in the playoffs and said, hey, Shohei, we made some moves in the trade deadline. Try to build this team around you. Obviously, things didn't work out. We didn't win the World Series like every single team wants to at the beginning of every season. But we at least made a run in the playoffs. We showed some progress. Try to come back, sign long-term, and we guarantee you we'll get you back here next year. And when I look back, I probably would have done the same thing that Paramedizian did, especially if Shohei Otani came up to me three days before the trade deadline and said that he wants to stay, stay through the trade deadline and doesn't want to be traded. Of course you're going to want to keep him, especially when your best player says, I want to stay here and I'm buying into this team. Of course, Medizian's going to buy in as well. It made sense at the time. Three games back at the trade deadline, I agreed with him in those decisions he made in those trades, getting Giolito, getting Crone and Grigic. I agreed with those deals. But in hindsight, you look back and you say, this looks like the worst trade deadline of all time. Not trading Shohei Otani and potentially getting back a monster return. And then trading top prospects for Giolito and Lopez and then also trading for Grigic and Krohn and having things completely fall apart within one month. But I don't think anybody could have seen this bad of a collapse for the Angels. And this has just been the story for the Angels over the last few seasons and honestly, during the entire Trout and Otani era. Things always find a way to completely collapse. Whether it's a bad injury, whether it's a player going cold, whether it's a big contract not working out, the Angels have had their fair share of collapses and disasters over the last few seasons. And honestly, as I said, throughout the entire Trout and Otani era. Every single time things look like they're going up, they're making a big trade, getting a big acquisition, signing a big free agent, they're going on a win streak, whatever it may be, things always find a way to go south there for the Angels. That's why I feel bad for them. That's why I feel bad. Because they took a shot at the deadline and tried to go all in. And if you look at what they traded at the deadline, they traded two of their top prospects and left-handed pitcher Kai Bush and catcher Edgar Caro, trading both of those guys to the Chicago White Sox for Giolito and Lopez. Both of those guys are now on waivers. And then for Grigic and Crone, they traded prospects for those guys as well. Grigic now being gone already. Matt Moore, Hunter Renfro, two guys that they got in free agency at one point. Both gone now too. Renfro was a guy they just added this past offseason. And now, if my math is right, with all five of these players being put on waivers, if these guys are picked up, by contending teams, which I'd imagine they'll be picked up by some contending teams since everybody has a hole at some point in their roster at this point in the season. They need help, whether it's an injury or play not producing. Everybody could use these five players if they're making a run in the postseason. So let's say, I don't know, the Texas Rangers, Houston Astros, Cincinnati Reds, Miami Marlins. These are just teams I'm just naming off the top of my head that could use each of these players. So if you look at it, all five of these guys probably should be picked up because contending teams, they all have an issue or two that they need to try to fill in right now at this point in the season. And maybe a team could use a guy like Randall Grigic off the bench, or a team could use two really good relievers like Lopez or Matt Moore. Or Hunter Renfro. Maybe he could be a good bench piece off the bench for a certain team. But if my math's right, all five of these players they picked up, the Andrews would save around 7 to $8 million. Because whatever team picks up these players would have to pay whatever their prorated salary is for the rest of the season. So I'd imagine it'd be around seven to eight million dollars the Angels would save. And where the Angels currently stand right now, according to Cots baseball contracts, they're eight million dollars over the competitive balance tax. 
$8 million over the luxury tax. So where they stand right now, they're $241 million of payroll. The limit is $233 million. So they're trying to find a way to get under that. And the reason they're doing this is because they want to get under the CBT threshold so that if Shohei Otani does end up leaving and rejecting a qualifying offer and signing elsewhere in free agency, the Angels would get a higher compensation pick back in return. Because if Shohei does leave and rejects a qualifying offer, the Angels would get a compensation pick right after the second round, around pick 75 to 78, 80-ish, somewhere around that range. Around 75 to 80, they would get a compensation pick back for. But if Shohei Otani does end up leaving and they're over that CBT threshold, they would end up getting a pick right around the fourth round and 140th overall. So that's why they want to get under the luxury tax because it's the difference of about 70-ish picks. Whether it's 75 to 80, if they're under that CBT threshold and under the luxury tax, or if they're over that threshold, it would be around 140th overall. So they want to save themselves and try to get a higher draft pick if Shohei Otani does end up leaving. And it shows they're probably worried about losing him because why wouldn't you be? You see things going south here. You see all these moves you made to the trade deadline, not working out, big contracts, not working out in years past, especially Anthony Rendon being one of them. And you know that Shohei Otani probably has a chance of leaving because he wants to go to a team that's better fit at winning and contending for years to come. In the Angels, where they stand right now, things are just not working out. When they do go all in and they try to make a big move, whether it's signing Anthony Rendon or trading for Lucas Giolito, things just have not gone their way. And even though I've supported them in their decision to go and make big moves in the trade deadline, things didn't go their way in reality when you look back. But at the time, you didn't know that things would go this south. You can't always look back in hindsight and say, I knew this was going to happen. Because in reality... No one's ever going to be right. No general manager is going to go 100 for 100 in trades, draft picks, signings. No one's ever going to go 100 for 100. That's just a reality. But the Angels are doing this because they are worried about losing Shohei Otani. They want to get a higher compensation pick back in return if he does end up leaving. But in reality, when you trade top prospects just a month ago and you're already releasing the players that you got back in return after mortgaging your future... It makes the situation look much worse from the perspective of a front office and then also from a fan's perspective as well. No one's really going to be a fan of what they just did today, releasing five players. What it does do, though, is save Adi Moreno in the front office some money. It saves them around, as I said, 7 to $8 million. Who knows the exact estimate, obviously. The Angels have that exact number, but no fan's probably going to have the exact number since there's different numbers online for what the Angels are at right now for a payroll. But from a fan standpoint, what they did today isn't a likable move. But with that being said, Giolito was awful for the Angels. He didn't work out. One for five in six starts with a 6.89 ERA, 25 earned runs in 32 and two-thirds innings pitched with a 1.47 whip. He didn't work out. That was a failure. As for Grigic and Renfro, those two guys are still in the Angels lineup for tonight. And the reason they're still in the Angels lineup is because the waiver period is 48 hours. So they can play for the Angels up until that 48-hour window's over. And if a team does put in a waiver claim, end up getting them. So there's some weird rules, obviously, there. But it is legal for them to still be playing. Obviously weird and awkward to still see them in the lineup. But they're still there playing for the Angels in tonight's game. As for all five of these players, they're all free agents at the end of the season. None of them had a future with this team. And at the end of the day, it's all a salary dump for the Angels 
to get under the competitive balance tax and try to get a higher draft pick in return if Shohei Otani does end up leaving. But it isn't the best look, obviously. If Shohei Otani does leave at the end of the day, and let's say you knew he was probably going to leave no matter what, you end up getting a 70th pick, 80th pick in return, let's say, which obviously isn't the best look when you could have maybe gotten a monster haul back in return. But that's not me going backwards on my words here. I do agree with the Angels keeping Otani at the trade deadline and trying to make a run with this current team because where they stood at the trade deadline, they were just three games back and still had Trout and some other players coming back from injury at some point. And even though they did have a tough month of August of opponents, I still bought in to them still trying to buy with this team and trying to make a run because you knew at the end of the day, you only have Shelly Otani for another half a season. Why not try to make a run, make it enticing for him to try to come back to Anaheim on a long-term contract? And that's what the Angels did. They tried to make a run with Otani. They tried to build around him during this trade deadline even more and added pieces. And obviously, each one of those pieces slapped him in the face just about. Even though Lopez was the only good return they got back at the trade deadline, he's now released as well. So, like I said, all these players are free agents at the end of the season. None of them had a future going back to Anaheim. And it was just a salary dump. But obviously not the best look there for Perry Manazian in the Angels' front office. It just shows that the moves they made were not successful or worth the investment they put in, which is obviously clear. And that's looking back in hindsight. But obviously it shows it only took a month for things to go completely south and for them to rip up things even more and make this disaster even more of a mess and more of a black hole over the past few years with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout on the Angels. These two guys deserve to win more than anybody in the game of baseball. And the disaster just became even worse. And that's why I think the chances of signing Shohei Otani are even less now, which I said last week on Otani towards UCL, that I thought there would be a chance that the Angels would have now a better chance of re-signing him. I thought the Angels' chances realistically went up with Otani's injury because I thought the Angels would say, hey, Shohei, we obviously know you have the injury, but we're still interested in giving you a monster contract and getting you back here. Whatever money you want, even if it's a long-term deal, come back and we'll just make things work for you. We'll pay you whatever you want just because we know how much you mean to this franchise. And we obviously know you're a superstar and the best player in the game of baseball. Just come back. That's what I thought the chances were. Because now there's going to be some teams that are reluctant to pay Shohei the 8-10 to 10 year deal that he would want in free agency without this UCL injury. But now with this injury, I think he still gets around $45, $50 million a year. But I think it's going to be around 4-5 to five years of a deal rather than the 8-10 to 10 year deal. Because now with the UCL injury, if he were to get Tommy John surgery, which we're not too sure what's going to happen yet, he would miss all of this upcoming season in 2024 and then come back in 2025. And who knows how long his arm would last after that. But I think there is a chance that the Angels' chances did go up last week. But now, with the moves they made today, I think the chances went down. Whatever went up last week, they went down today. And not because Shohei is going to say, oh, we're throwing in the towel in the season now I want to leave? No, I think it's, at the end of the day, I think Shohei sees it now even more that a lot of the moves that the Angels have tried to make around him have not really worked out. And I think he obviously knows that. He's known that now for his career there. But I think now he sees it even more. that The disaster now that the Angels have put together over the last few years just continues to get worse. Whether it be bad contracts, tough moves, or bad luck, which the Angels have had their fair share of every single one of those, I think Shohei sees it's even now more of a mess. And obviously that's tough to say and see. As an Angels fan, I like the Angels because I love Otani and I love Trout. I watched probably about 75% of the games this year I tuned into just to see Otani and Trout in the same lineup. And I've now mentioned it a million times that I'm a big fan of both these guys and I want them to win more than anybody. And being able to watch them is something that is historic and an honor because you're not going to see two of the best players in the 21st century suit up and be on the same roster again. 
Otani Trout being in the same lineup as something that special. And things just didn't work out for Shohei, Trout, and the rest of the Angels during the tenure of both those guys being on the roster together. And so now it brings it a question, who's going to pick up these five players? And at the end of the day, it's a waiver system, so it's in the reverse order of win percentage. So whatever team has the worst record in baseball has the best chance at getting any of these five players. But with that being said, there's probably not going to be too many teams that are already done with this season that are interested in getting these guys. Because when you're going out and getting these guys, you're paying them the prorated salary that they do, and you're already in a lost season. So for, let's say, the Oakland Athletics, the Colorado Rockies, none of these teams, even though they would be the top two waiver claims and would be able to get any of these five players they want, this season's already over. So realistically, they wouldn't want to go out there and spend the prorated salary to get those guys in uniform for 25 games or so. So it brings into question what contenders have the best shot at getting Giolito and the rest of these guys. I'd start off with the Miami Mowins, 66 and 65, the Reds 68 and 65, Giants are 68 and 63, Diamondbacks 69 and 62, and the Red Sox are 69 and 63. I'd say those five teams of the contenders have the best chances at getting those players. And then also add in the Blue Jays at 72 and 60. They're another team there to note. So all four of those teams that I mentioned in the NL, Marlins, Reds, Giants, Diamondbacks, they're all separated by two and a half games. The Red Sox currently are five and a half games back of the last wildcard spot in the AL. The Blue Jays are another team, 72 and 60, two and a half games back in the AL wildcard race. That's another team that could go out there and get one of these five players. But if I'm the Red Sox, the only guys I'm really interested in here are Lopez and Moore. Not the rest of them. The Red Sox have a handful of outfielders already, so Grigic and Renfro really wouldn't help too much. And the Giolito was awful for the Angels. One in five and six starts with a 6.89 ERA. Obviously really struggled. If you were to go to a team like the Dodgers, which it's very unlikely because the Dodgers have one of the best win percentages in the game of baseball, he'd probably revive his career and turn back time. But the reality is he's probably not going to go to the Dodgers. Not many of these players have a chance of going to the top teams like the Orioles, like the Dodgers, like the Braves, because they got to pass through waivers. And as I said, it's an inverse order of win percentage. So if you have a really bad record, you have a higher chance at getting a player than a team with a very good record does. So if you're a team at the very top, there's going to be some team in the middle, a contender that's competing to make the playoffs that are probably going to snag each of these five players. And we'll see what happens there. But Renfro and Grigic can still play for the Angels for the next 48 hours. So that's the reason they're still in the lineup tonight. Even though it's weird, that's just the way things are. You can still play even though you technically are waived and are no longer with the team. Until a team picks you up and gets you off waivers, you're still with this club and can still play. If I'm the Red Sox, though, I'm not really interested in too many of these players besides Mora Lopez. Two guys who could help out in the bullpen, a big weakness for the Red Sox. They would contribute right away considering they both have ERAs in the twos and have been good with the Angels this year. I would take both of those guys if I were the Red Sox. As for any of the other guys, Giolito, I'm not really too sure there's a way to fix him right now. I think he probably needs an offseason just to get back on track, reload, and figure things out. And like I said, it is an inverse of win percentage. So unless a team, for instance, like the Pittsburgh Pirates, could go out there and try to put in a waiver claim for any of these players and use it as a tryout and a showcase for a player to try to entice them to come back in free agency. Maybe the New York Mets and New York Yankees could do that. They are two teams that could afford paying a prorated salary on these players for the rest of the season, even if it's a couple million dollars here and there. They're not afraid of spending money each of those two franchises, being the two highest payrolls in the game of baseball. And obviously, both being on lost seasons right now, maybe they could go out and try to put in a waiver claim for a guy like Giolito and maybe say, hey, try to come back to us in free agency. Who knows? 
I mean, a lesser team could definitely do that at this point, but it's unlikely. I'd say more of the contending teams are likely to do that, and that's why I named the Marlins, Reds, Diamondbacks, Giants, Red Sox, and the Toronto Blue Jays. So just to conclude here with the Angels, I think at the end of the day, it does make sense from a financial standpoint, letting these players go. None of these guys had a future with this franchise. Grigic was hitting just 140. With a 280 slugging percentage and a 470 OPS in 26 games for the Angels, with three home runs, seven runs batted in, and 26 strikeouts in 26 games since being acquired by the Angels in the trade deadline. It made sense letting him go. As for the other piece, Giolito that they got at the trade deadline, the other big piece, he really struggled, as I said, one and five and six starts. Makes sense to let him go as well. He wasn't the player that the Angels wanted him to be when they traded for him. One and five with a 6.89 ERA in an Angels uniform. Obviously, things didn't work out there. Renfro was a guy that got in free agency this past offseason. 18 home runs, 239 batting average with a 725 OPS. With a 94 OPS plus, the average in baseball in the major leagues is 100 for an OPS plus. So he's just slightly below average as a hitter this season, according to OPS plus. So if you look at it, it makes sense moving off from these guys. Renfro, and then the same goes for Grigic. The same goes for Giolito. But for Matt Moore and Lopez, two of their better relievers, that's where the issue is there. They're waving the white flag on the season, which I get. But Lopez and Moore were two good pieces for them in the bullpen. And obviously, it just shows that even though these two players are good, they're just getting rid of them just a salary dump, just to try to get under the CBT there threshold, just to try to get themselves in a better position that if Otani does end up leaving in free agency, which it is pretty likely at this point, which things have always looked like it's likely that he's going to leave, but at the same time, that doesn't mean go out and trade him at the trade deadline because when you do trade him, there's no chance you're going to get him in free agency. That's why it made sense for them to buy at the trade deadline and try to build around Shohei Otani for one more half a season because if you do trade him the deadline, he's not coming back in free agency. At the same time, though, you could still lose by keeping him and then having him walk in free agency. So that's the risk that the Angels ran with and took. And at the end of the day, like I mentioned, you've got to take big risks if you want to get big rewards. The Angels did so, and obviously things didn't work out for them. But you're never going to know how far you can go or how much you can succeed in life if you don't take a big risk. Playing it safe and always playing complacent and just staying still doesn't ever really help you get to that next level. So the Angels went all in and tried. Things didn't really work out there. But when you look at it from a fan's perspective, it's obviously not a good look. It's not a good look for other players in the clubhouse as well. Guys that are teammates of these guys seeing you throw in the white flag, which it does make sense at this point. Like I said, the Angels currently sit 11 and a half games back of the last wild cut spot in the American League. 7 and 18 in the month of August. It's just been a disaster of a month for the Angels. A very tough schedule, though. As I said, like I noted before the trade deadline, it's going to be a very tough month of August there, opponents-wise, for the Angels. But that doesn't mean just throwing the white flag on August 1st when the three games out. It made sense to buy the trade deadline. When you look back in hindsight, Manasian's going to be ripped to shreds for years to come and probably decades considering how much it could have got in return for Otani and how much it gave up in return to get Giolito and to get Ronaldo Lopez, sending two of the top prospects in return just for about 25 games or so with those two players on their roster. And obviously things obviously went south there. So I don't really have to mention that again. Everybody knows things didn't work out for the Angels with those two pieces there coming into the trade deadline. And the same goes with Grigic and the rest of the moves that the Angels have made now for honestly the past few years. Not many moves have really gone their way. But this move though, when you look at it from a baseball perspective and a financial perspective, it makes sense. They want to get under the CBT and try to get themselves in a position to get a higher draft pick as a compensation pick in return if Otani does end up leaving. But from the other perspective, a fan's perspective, it's not a great look. From a clubhouse perspective, not a great look. And then also, to pending free agents, not a great look. 
You see the angels are a complete dumpster fire. They continue to find ways to just completely turn things upside down and have things go south. It's obviously not an enticing thing for free agents. Not many free agents are going to be attracted to the situation here, especially with the Angels' decision of the trade deadline now looking even worse with time. And it only took a month or so to say that. So now I'm going to move on and talk about the Yankees. One player that they cut today and waived was third baseman Josh Donaldson, who's currently on the 60-day IL, struggled heavily this season for the Yankees, a 142 batting average with 10 home runs, 15 runs batted in, and 659 OPS. In two seasons with the Yankees, he played 165 games, so just about one full season over the last two years, with 25 home runs, 77 runs batted in, 180 total strikeouts, a 385 slugging percentage, and a 678 OPS. If you look at his tenure with the Yankees, it was one that was a disaster and one that's forgettable for a lot of Yankees fans. The Yankees are definitely going to be happy to not have to see him in their lineup anymore hitting 140. It's just been a disaster there for Donaldson since being traded from Minnesota to the Yankees in exchange for Gio Urshela and Gary Sanchez. Not a bad return there for the Minnesota Twins. They got a good player in Gio Urshela who ends up leaving in free agency anyways, but solid player there and obviously was a better player over the last couple of years than what Josh Donaldson gave the Yankees. So there was an $8 million buyout for Josh Donaldson's 2024 option. So the Yankees will have to pay him at least that $8 million and probably the prorated salary for the end of this season. But the Yankees do get out of this deal, and now it'll be Josh Donaldson on the waiver wire as well next to those five players there for the Angels. I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Donaldson ends up going to the Dodgers next year and somehow finds a way to turn back time because the Dodgers are just a factory at doing that. J.D. Martinez, Ryan Brazier, Jason Hayward... Kiki Hernandez, they always find a way to get everything out of a player and turn back time and get players to be playing their best possible baseball. Joe Kelly goes back to the Dodgers, turns things around. Lance Lynn turns things around in a Dodgers uniform as well. They find ways to always do that. So Donaldson's done for the rest of the season. So maybe next year he'll sign with somebody this offseason free agent. Maybe next season he goes to the Dodgers and turns back time, which I'm saying that kind of as a joke, but at the same time being legit. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he goes to the Dodgers and somehow becomes a productive player again because the Dodgers always find a way to do that. So if Donaldson were to be picked up or if any of these other five players that I mentioned from the Angels were to be picked up by Friday, they could be on a postseason roster for this upcoming postseason in October. And for the Yankees... Things end up working out for them now, getting rid of Donaldson. Now they don't have to really deal with him being on the roster anymore. They just cut ties with them and completely wave the white flag on him in their future there, which it makes sense. It's just been a disaster for the Yankees with Donaldson in their uniform. The Yankees, where they currently stand, are 63 and 68, five games under 500, and are very far off from the playoffs, and are actually on the verge right now of their first losing season since 1992. First losing season since 1992. So that obviously brings into question, what are they going to do with Aaron Boone and Brian Cashman? Boone being the manager and Cashman being their general manager, are those guys going to be back? If I was Hal Steinbrenner, the Yankees owner, I would fire Cashman and I'd maybe give Aaron Boone one more year. I wouldn't be surprised if both these guys are fired. At the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if both these guys are back with the Yankees for another season, since Steinbrenner has a great relationship with both of these guys. But the roster was depleted with injuries this past season, and there was a lot of regressing talent. Anthony Rizzo, DJ LeMayhew, Luis Severino, a lot of players in this Yankees team that were regressing over the last year. So I don't really blame Aaron Boone for that. It's not Boone's fault, in my opinion. But sometimes moving off of the general manager and the manager is best, and that's what the Yankees might end up doing. Clearing house is sometimes the best option. If a new GM steps in, sometimes they want their own manager. 
When you look at the Giants, Joe Shane comes in as a new general manager and then ends up firing Joe Judge and brings in his own guy in Brian Dable, and it ends up working out for the Giants. On the reverse, the Red Sox fired Dave Dombrowski. Alex Cora ends up being suspended for a year, but was still the Red Sox manager at that point when the Red Sox let go of Dombrowski during the 2019 season. The new general manager comes in in high and bloom, and he ends up keeping Alex Cora and getting him back after that suspended season in 2020. So it can go both ways, where sometimes clearing house is what a team decides to do, and then it could go the other way, where a new general manager steps in and decides to keep the same manager. That's sometimes the way things go in sports. And if you look at it for the Giants for years, they were hopping in between general manager and manager and never restarting with the new regime. And that was a big issue there for the Giants, and that's what really held them up for the last five years before Brian Dable and Joe Shane stepped in as general manager and coach of the Giants. The Giants end up deciding to fire Pat Shermer after one year, but then they keep Dave Gettleman, and he hires Joe Judge. Then they fire Dave Gettleman. Joe Judge is still in the mix of things, maybe coming back as the head coach. Joe Shane steps in and then fires Joe Judge, restarts, clears house, and things worked out, obviously, last year for the New York Giants. So we'll see what happens here with the Yankees. If I'm the Yankees, though, and I'm Hal Steinbrenner, I'm firing Brian Cashman. Things have not worked out. Over the last few seasons, some big moves that he's made obviously haven't worked out. The Yankees this season are on the verge of their first losing season since 1992, which is honestly impressive. No losing seasons since 1992. That's very impressive on that franchise. No losing seasons in 30 years is just ridiculous. So that's obviously something that can be proud of in the last 30 years. Only one losing season this would be since 1992. But when I look at this situation with the Yankees, I think there's a good chance that Cashman's back still with the Yankees for another season. And the reason why I say that is because Steinbrenner and Cashman are very good friends. He hired Cashman as an intern back in the 80s and then ends up signing him to be the general manager for the Yankees in 1998, which he's been in that role since 1998, helped the Yankees win a World Series in 98, 99, 2000, and 2009. Four years as a general manager for the Yankees, also as the assistant general manager for the Yankees when they won in 1996. So he's been with the franchise for a very long time and obviously has good friends with Hal Steinbrenner. So I don't think it's going to be Steinbrenner firing him. I think it's either going to be Cashman's back for another year if Cashman feels the heat and thinks it's time to go, maybe he resigns. But I think he'll be back for another season. And the same probably goes for Boone as well. I wouldn't be surprised if the Yankees keep both of these guys. But at the same time, wouldn't be surprised if Steinbrenner rips it up and says, let's just restart Obviously, we had a great tenure here with Cashman winning four World Series with him as the general manager and then another as the assistant general manager. So five World Series with him being either the assistant or the general manager itself. But it's been a great run. Now we got to go in a different direction because things haven't really worked out in recent years. With that being said, I wouldn't be surprised if they just run it back for another year. As I said, these two guys are very good friends and it obviously be tough to fire one of your friends. But it is a business at the end of the day and that's what it comes down to. Anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. And I hope you guys have a good one. I will see you guys in the next episode. Probably we'll record tomorrow on today's NFL cuts. There were a lot of surprise cuts in the NFL over the last day or so. So I'll break down all of those tomorrow and then maybe give you guys some more thoughts on the Red Sox. And hopefully they get a win in tonight's game against Houston. So that'll end this. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As I said, appreciate it as always. And I will see you guys again soon.